Okay, well, uh, why don't we stand one more time as a church and let's read our scripture text uh, today, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and um, last week we looked uh, at verses 1 through 3. This week I want to begin to go down the list of Paul's, um, the litany really of Paul's afflictions here. And so why don't we begin reading in verse 4. Begin reading in verse 4. This is what the Word of God says. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in the genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by, the glor- by glory and dishonor, evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Let's pray one more time for the word of the Lord today. Father, we have set before us here such a magnanimous example. Lord, the exemplary life of the Apostle Paul not just for pastors, not just for preachers, not just for people in ministry, God, but for all of your people. There is so much for us to learn here about his endurance and a reflection upon the things that he suffered, how he suffered and with what attitude, with what demeanor and with what heart and what state of mind. And God, it is truly a complex thing to be in your service. At times it is overwhelming. And Lord, without your grace, we would be overwhelmed, and we would all together crumble beneath the pressure and the weight, not only of the external pressures, but internal pressures and of our own sin and of our own folly. Father, we thank you so much for your glorious word. Lord, thank you for your inspired truth. Thank you for revealing these things to us so that we would not remain in the dark. Thank you, God, that you never left us to die in our sin. Father, we bless you. Father, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is going to be a two-part study of this litany of afflictions of the Apostle Paul that I've entitled, Lessons from a Commendable Minister of God. Now, I get that word minister from Paul's word in verse 4. He called himself there servant of God or servants of God, talking about himself and his associates men like Timothy, men like Titus, men like Silvanus. He was a minister of God. He was a servant of God. And he had a ministry that was worthy of being commended. Now, there are two reasons why this is applicable for you and I, whether you're a minister or not, whether you're, you're in ministry or not. Uh, obviously, we all don't have this. We don't share the same ministry of Paul. None of us do. None of us are apostles. None of us will ever be apostles because there are no more apostles today. But whether you're a pastor or whether you're just a member of the church, just a believer, there is so much here for our universal 
edification for two reasons mainly. Number one, because all believers will face suffering. All believers will face similar afflictions and similar distresses that really call for a life of endurance. And secondly, because all believers are called to the same standard of godliness and the same standard of holiness that Paul sets before us here. Just because we don't have the same calling or the same ministry position, that doesn't mean we don't have the same standard. That doesn't mean that we are not called to the same manner and conduct and character of life. We do. And so I want to begin, first of all, by looking at the complexity of Christian service. Now, I say that because if you look back at verse 4 with me, where we're going to begin, he says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. Now, that's just interesting because he gives us a threefold aspect, sort of a matrix over which all of ministry and all of these sufferings can be laid upon, the afflictions, the hardships, the distresses. This comprises his entire life, his entire ministry, and it calls, it demands for much endurance, for much endurance. Now, I say it is the complexity of Christian service because, Paul says there at the beginning of verse 4, in everything, That is to say, in every area of life, in every aspect of life, whether external, internal, spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, financial, whatever it may be, there is a complexity to the Christian life. And there's a complexity to Christian ministry. It demands great endurance. There is great suffering and there is great hardship that is involved in all of it. And so what Paul is calling us to is a type of character that will gird up, that will endure under great affliction, that will endure under what he calls distresses, that which presses down upon you. And who of us cannot identify with the words that Paul chooses here? Have you been through afflictions? Have you been through hardships? Are you being distressed by some great trial right now? This is why I said we can all identify with what Paul is talking about in Paul's ministry. Really, what follows, if you would, is sort of a description of these three terms. This is how we understand his afflictions. So first, Paul sets it out in, in, general, in general terms. These are afflictions, these are hardships, these are distresses. Now, what is that about? Well, he's going to give us the particularities of all of this as he goes down the litany, the catalog of his afflictions in this passage. But suffice it to say, brothers and sisters, that as a minister of the gospel, Paul says that in everything he wanted a ministry that was commendable. You see that word there, commendable. Now, that's interesting because if you study the theology of Corinthians. Look back at chapter 3, for example, and he sort of sneers at commending himself. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? That carries a pejorative connotation. In other words, that's sort of a negative statement. He's saying, look, we are not commending ourselves again, are we? He says, or do we need as some letters of commendation? Do we need the approval of other people in order to vouch for our ministry? Do we need letters that prove that we're good ministers of God? And obviously the rhetorical question there, the conditional clause is no, we don't. No, we don't. 
the type of commending that Paul is talking about is the type of commending his ministry in such a way that God gets the glory. That it's, he's commending himself in his weakness so that the strength and the power and the might of God would be glorified. That's what Paul does throughout the entire epistle. If you see uh, chapter 10, verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 37, and other places, he uses self-commendation for the purpose of glorifying God, of glorifying God. That's his whole aim in all of it. And for that reason, he sought to have a whole life, a whole ministry that was commendable. And so it demanded much endurance. And I pray and I hope that as we look at the example of Paul, that it would breed endurance in our own lives, that we would learn something of what it means to gird up under our trials, to endure, as it were, whatever trial may come into our lives. I can bet you this, I bet you if we go down the list here in our church, or go down each person, our trials, would, many of us, though we have great hardships, there are many of us who have never been beaten for the gospel. There are many of us who have never been caught in a riot. He'll go on and talk about in chapter 12 that he was beaten with rods, that he was stoned. Now stand up if you've been stoned for the gospel. Okay, so Paul's trials are extremely severe. I want to encourage you, the reason why he does all this and the reason why he suffers what he suffers and the reason why he pursues endurance is because of the character that it produces. You know this. We just studied through James. Our brother Chris taught us this very thing. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And certainly in this catalog of afflictions, we're looking at various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so this is the endurance that the faith of Paul produced as he didn't buckle under the weight of his afflictions, as he didn't succumb to the suffering and the distresses that he was under, no matter how, how complex, no matter how pressing, no matter how weighty, no matter how many times he felt like he was at his wit's end and didn't know how he would make it another day. He still endured, and that type of faith produced this endurance. But it doesn't stop there. James says, let endurance have its perfect result. Sometimes we cut our endurance short, or sometimes we don't allow endurance to have its biblical, its, its God-ordained uh, uh, design in our lives, because it doesn't just stop at, well, I'm putting up with something. But listen to what it says, let it have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect. And the word telos there means means mature, that you may be mature, that you may be complete, that you may be lacking in nothing. In other words, no matter what circumstance you're in or no matter what trial you're facing, you will know how to face it. And if you don't endure through trials, if you don't persevere, if you don't gird up under your trials, you won't know how to face your trials with endurance. Romans chapter 5 sort of gives us a different glimpse. Paul says there, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulations bring about perseverance, our, peers, our perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. 
You see, that's what our trials and that's what our endurance is designed to do. That no matter how complex our ministry gets, no matter how complex our Christian life gets, if we endure, it will produce and it will promote and it will result in hope. I don't know about you, but that's the number one thing you need in a trial, hope. Hope that you'll make it out. That's the number one thing that you're going to need in the Christian life is hope that your, your trials will one day be ended. The hope that there, is a, that there is a heaven reserved for you. The hope that your trials are not in vain. As Paul tells the Corinthians, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That everything that you're doing is not in vain if it's in the Lord. Now, let's focus in now on the litany, the list here that he gives us. Beginning, and it breaks up in different ways, as you'll see. He begins, first of all, to talk about those types of hardships that are of an external nature. They are of an external nature. And even within this category, in verse 5, there are two separate categories that we will look at. There is the, persecu- or the hardship that arises out of what we could say persecution or call persecution. And then there are those hardships that arise out of what we could call personal sacrifice. Look at the first one, the hardship of persecution. He says, in beatings, imprisonments, in tumults. That sort of begins our first parody here. And when Paul references beatings, well, this just means in any way whatsoever that he was afflicted physically by either someone's hand, fist, or by some instrument, or by some weapon like a whip or a rod, or a stone. And, uh, of course, we know all of the above is something that Paul faced. Second, Second Corinthians, a parallel passage to what we're looking at in this text. Second Corinthians eleven twenty four sheds a little light on this. Here he just says beatings, but then there he tells us how he was beat. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Think about that. Five times. He was lashed, he was whipped by the Jews 39 times. You do the math. I wonder what his back looked like. It says, three times I was beaten with rods. I was beaten with rods. He says, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I spent in the deep. And you know how the text goes. But these, uh, these afflictions often overlapped one upon another, and they often happened in conjunction together with other things. For example, it was often that he was imprisoned when he was beat. For example, Acts chapter 16, Paul was treated very harshly in prison. He wasn't, you know, prison was not like the prisons we have today. You can watch television, they feed you three meals a day, everything is sanitized, you know, you have your personal bathroom, okay, you get to go outside in the fresh air. The Greco-Roman prisons were terrible, terrible conditions, inhumane conditions. People often died in there of all sorts of maladies, physical, all sorts of infirmities, what have you. Acts 16, though, shows this conjunction of imprisonment and being beat. He says, the crowd rose up together against him. The chief magistrates tore the robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison. 
commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Uh, This is one of the most important aspects of Paul's uh, trials, his sufferings, his afflictions, was his imprisonments. You know that many of his letters were written from prison. Philippi, Philemon, Philippians, that is, Ephesians, Colossians, all written from prison. All written from prison. And isn't it amazing and isn't it convicting to think that under those conditions, the Apostle Paul wrote some of the most amazing things, like rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. You know, those types. Let the peace of God rule your heart. Those types of passages come to us in the context of Paul's imprisonments, which are, which are just amazing. Paul was also beaten in conjunction with the next word, tumult, the word for riot. And this happened in Acts chapter 14 at the revival at Lystra. Revival breaks out. People are believing. Many people are being won over to the Lord. Many people were being made disciples, and a riot breaks out. Sound exciting? The Christian life is really exciting. Don't you want to be a part of it? Oh, I pray that no riots break out when we go preaching. <laughs> I'm not. This is not uh, a call for any kind of ascetic type of evangelism, okay? But uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 19 says this very thing. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. He says, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So on one occasion, at least, he was beaten so severely, the people that beat him thought he was dead. Just amazing what this man has gone through. Is it any wonder that this man, that we look at Paul, that wrote so much literature for the church and doctrine for the church, that this man, God used, Acts chapter 9 says he was chosen. He was an instrument of God. God said, I'm going to make you an example. You're going to be my tool. You're going to be my instrument to teach others. I'm going to make you an example to everyone of what it means to suffer for my name's sake. And uh, that's exactly what he says when he recounts his own testimony there in, I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he talks about that he was being made an example for everyone who will believe uh, after him. So those are some of the things that happened during his persecutions, but there are other hardships of a more personal nature, and that is of a personal sacrifice Look at the next three. He speaks of labors. He speaks of sleeplessness. And he speaks of hunger, the word nistea, which literally can mean fasting. Uh, It's used in that context at various times in the book of Acts. It's used of fasting. For example, when the church had to come together and fast for choosing certain men to appoint to certain positions of Christian leadership. They fasted in order to do that. They fasted when they sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. These, uh, these types of things took place. But the word can also, as the NASB has chosen to render it, hunger. In other words, there were times where he was deprived of food. Oh, now you're touching on something really clo- you know, sensitive to me. I mean, you deprive me of food, right? It really, really will challenge my sanctification. It's not easy to be deprived of food. It's not easy at all. And, um, but it says here, labors. The Apostle Paul is such a convicting minister that I can't ever come to Paul when I feel overworked as a pastor and try to go to him for refuge. Because you know what he tells me? Work harder! <laughs> 
It doesn't give me any rest. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 says, This is the reason that they labored to teach and to instruct and to present every man complete in Christ. His labor was a gospel labor. He wasn't just spinning his wheels on programs in the church. He wasn't just trying to spin his wheels on, you know, church growth methodology. Paul's labor, his toil, the sweat of his brow in the church was gospel sweat. It was sweat to see the church edified and built up and purified in the apostolic tradition. And it was through these labors that he often would commend his ministry to the church. Again, he'll say in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, 27, he says, I have been in labor and hardship. And again, he says, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without, often without food and cold and in exposure. He was exposed to the elements. He didn't always have a nice fancy hotel to stay at when he was a guest speaker at a church. He's lucky, like Jesus, if he had anywhere to lay his head at night. And so this is the real deal here. This is the real deal, this man. Paul's personal sacrifice, his labors, his sleepless nights, his hunger, even his fasting, were always for the sake of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says this. He's trying to encourage the Thessalonians that he does what he does in order to edify them. He says, for you recall, brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day, so not to be a burden on any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. The gospel. This is what I mean, personal sacrifice. We're going to find out even in this epistle here, once we get to chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul had all the right in the world not to work. He could have taken that right. But he would often sacrifice that right for the sake of the gospel. He would often forego his apostolic authority and his apostolic right, uh, primarily, in this area of finances, say, you know what, you don't have to pay me. I'll work for free. Just let me preach the gospel. I'll take care of myself. I'm not going to burden you if that's going to somehow be an encumbrance to the gospel, hindering the gospel. I will do whatever it takes not to hinder the gospel. It's interesting, but in this very context, if you jump back up here in chapter 6, if you jump back up to chapter 3, this is what sort of spawned this whole litany of, of, of sufferings was right here. He says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. So in other words, you remember he just came down that glorious prophetic proclamation as he's citing there Isaiah that this is the acceptable time, this is the day of salvation, and now he says, and in no way is my ministry a hindrance or an obstacle to that. Let me show you why. And he begins to take us down this list of suffering. He took the ministry so serious. He was willing to do whatever it took. He, he, he labored to the point of fatigue. That's the word implies There was wearisome nights. There was nights where he was so overcome, no doubt, with the stress and the hardship. He was so overwhelmed with the concern of the churches, as it says again in chapter 11, that he would lose sleep. Oftentimes, he would lose sleep for the sake of the church. I remember one preacher saying that he didn't sleep but two days a week in his ministry. 
that time. And that's what it is. I've tasted very little of this, but I have experienced this. Something going on in the church, some problem, some issue going on in the church. You will lose sleep over it. You will, it is built into the DNA of ministry to suffer in this way. And if you don't want to suffer in this way, then you don't want ministry. Because that's what's entailed. That's part of the cost. And now, Paul moves on to talk about not so much the things that he suffered, but also positively now maybe, the, the things that he did. Another thing that made his ministry commendable in verse 6, moving away from what we could call these external hardships and to what we could call personal virtues that were also very important for his ministry. Look at verse 6. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. I love that. Somebody pointed this out to me. I think it was Josh right before... um, my, my sermon was done, but whether it was last night or today, but that he uses this preposition in, I was like, oh, great, just threw my whole sermon up in front of me, and I don't know what to do. So I didn't even emphasize this, so I'll do it now, okay? But it, it, in re- this, 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 this preposition in, and then with the term, just literally means that it is in association with these virtues. This is a, a dative, we could say, a dative of association, a dative that sort of describes his manner, his demeanor. This is the manner, this is the disposition that this pastor had. Begin with me again to look at this list. He says, in purity, and all true character begins there. Hognetes is the word for purity. And it's interesting, but that he'll quote the word again um, in chapter 11 when he talks to the Corinthians and he tells them essentially who has deceived you away from the purity of the gospel, okay? The simplicity of devotion to the gospel. We looked at chapter 1 verse 12 where Paul says here that he could commend his ministry, you remember? And he says in holiness, in godly sincerity, and so that language there is similar to the language here. To the language here. And Paul uses this term in connection with the Corinthians' knowledge in, in chapter 11, verse 3. And so it shows me that the next word is really intentional. Not just purity of conduct, but also purity of knowledge, we could even say. He says, in knowledge. Now that's a very interesting thing because it forced people to, 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 to reflect, what does he mean by knowledge? How much you know? So as he's trying to say, I commend my ministry because I have such a great intellect. Okay? I don't think he's showing off here, his intellect. I think what he's saying is that he had the wherewithal to back up everything that he taught. He had a pristine knowledge of the Word of God. Paul was a theologian par excellence, second to none. The Apostle Paul was filled with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of Christ. He proclaimed the riches of the knowledge of Christ to the churches. And so both of these taken together, purity and knowledge, are inseparable. You can't separate these two virtues. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. And what this shows us, I'm about to quote this verse, is that Paul, he, Paul took his own medicine, we could say. Whatever he prescribed, it was that which he himself was willing to do. And so he tells young Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. 
Isn't that amazing? And then he tells Timothy, persevere in these things. No matter how many times you blow it or you fail, or no matter how many times you miss the mark, don't fail to persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure the salvation both of yourself and those who hear you. That's what it's all about. The minister's self-watch is twofold, purity and knowledge. His, his, uh, his, his, his character and his doctrine, they go together. No matter what Paul's demeanor may have been, and it doesn't matter how eloquent Paul was, and this is what so encouraged me about Paul, is that Paul set before them this virtue. He didn't try to impress them with more superficial things. He didn't, remember as he tells the Corinthians and other places, I didn't come to you with the wisdom of the world. I didn't come to you with great eloquence of speech. Matter of fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11.6. This is an amazing verse. In a place like Corinth where, 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 where skillful rhetorical ability was a very high premium. People made their living on going out into the public squares and being able to show people their eloquence. Whether they're articulating philosophy, they're articulating some sort of, of, of teaching or something, he was, they, were, they were making their trade on how eloquent and how skillful they were. Now look with me there. But he says, but even if I am unskilled... And what's interesting about that word, unskilled, is it comes from the Greek word idiotes. Uh, uh, sorry, I feel like an idiotes because I couldn't say that. The word unskilled is idiotes, and now you kind of even get my point. The English derivative comes from this Greek word, and the English derivative is idiot. So he's saying, look, even if I'm an idiot, so to speak, in speech, right, um, Paul is saying, look, I may not be the most eloquent person, but I am not so in knowledge. I don't lack, I'm not an idiotes in knowledge. His knowledge was sound. And it's looking, matter of fact, he says, in fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. That's amazing. That's a, that's a powerful teacher. That's a powerful pastor. That's a powerful preacher to be able to say, look, in all things, I prove to you my knowledge of the gospel, basically, what he's saying. So while other people might have surpassed him, while there was those that could have easily excelled Paul in eloquence, in speech, but he was not surpassed in the knowledge of the truth, in the knowledge of the gospel, in the knowledge of the word of God, he was not. And now, moving on here from purity and knowledge, the next virtue on the list, and you know it's so tricky to try to go through these virtue lists or, the, or vice lists or any lists in the New Testament whatsoever, it's hard because you just can't skip over any one of these. And so we got to do a sermon on one or two verses, that's okay. These things are good for us, these virtues are essential for Christian character. But the, the next two items are also that which kind of tends to go together, patience and kindness patience and kindness. And obviously, these two virtues are reminiscent of what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Just like it's not the book of Revelations, it's the book of Revelation. Okay? Sorry, it's just personal pet peeve. 
we love to say the fruits of the Spirit, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's manifold, it's many-sided, okay? But uh, it is one fruit. In other words, the, why is that important? Why isn't it the fruits of the Spirit? Just to go on a little tangent. Because it is speaking of the once and for all event that the Spirit has done by sanctifying you and producing these things in your life through regeneration. It is when the Spirit, the moment the Spirit invades your life, outcome all these virtues. And uh, these virtues belong to Paul. You know, Paul was such a gracious pastor. I'm convinced. And what makes Paul such a gracious pastor is what we just talked about. He knew so much. His knowledge was not lacking. He wasn't ignorant about anything. And yet, he was also dominated in the same sense that he was dominated by sort of a mantleship of biblical knowledge and wisdom. He was also dominated and clothed with biblical humility and patience and gentleness as the fruit of the Spirit goes on to say. Matter of fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 10, verse 1. Just to show you something very fascinating, but that by the time you get to chapter 10, you're embarking on a whole different section of the book of Corinthians. Well, really, the book starts taking a really harsh tone because he's attacking false teachers. He's attacking false uh, apostles. He's attacking people that are attacking his ministry. And the Corinthians are kind of given into that. And so it makes sense that at this stage in the letter, he's beginning to issue a rebuke to the Corinthians. But even in this, notice how he appeals to them. He says, now, I, Paul, uh, myself, I urge you in this way, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Then he asks them in verse 2, he says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. You see, that's his heart. That is at the very bottom of Paul's motive. That is the base motivation of Paul's heart, is to be gentle towards the church. He doesn't want to come with a rod. He doesn't want to discipline. He doesn't want to rebuke or correct. He wants to love them and nurture them and, and be kind to them and, and, and bless them and bless them. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Beginning in verse 5, he says, We never came to you with flattering speech. As you know, nor with a pretext to greed, he says, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, uh, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. I mean, think about it, man. You're an apostle. You knew Jesus personally. Paul had a vision, direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. He had the signs of an apostle. He could, do, he could work miracles, and he could assert that authority very easily. But this is his motive. But we proved to be gentle among you as, nursing, as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children. That's what he wanted to be like. He wanted to love the church into purity, not beat them into purity, he wanted to be so gentle and patient among them. He wanted to so love them. He didn't want to lord it over them. As he says even in this epistle, 2 Corinthians 1.24, he didn't want to lord his authority over them. He didn't want to be a tyrant. He didn't want to dominate people. 
He didn't want to extend himself in that way. What a lesson for pastors today, right? So much spiritual abuse going on everywhere. I often heard of a story of a guy that wanted to marry his, um, his girl, that you know, his, his fiance, And the pastor, you know, this church got a word, uh, some sort of prophetic word that, no, this is not a good situation, and I just, the Lord has shown me that you should not be married to her. But there was no issue, there was no sin, there was no problem, there was no, there was nothing wrong other than that this pastor thought he got some sort of prophetic word that said, I don't think it's a good idea. And that would be, to me, a very clear evidence of a pastor overextending himself there, you know. No biblical grounds to say no marriage. I mean, that's not good counsel. That's somebody who pushes his weight around and tries to use this false spirituality to do it. Got to be so careful. Christian patience and Christian kindness is based first and foremost, as you know, on God's own character, His attributes. It is, it is we follow God and His patience. Romans 2.14 says, we know that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Ephesians chapter 2, it says that he, he showed us the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness, in kindness. In Titus 3.4, it says that when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. God is a, 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 a compassionate God. The Psalms are filled with this. Psalm 78, verse 38. Psalm 86, verse 15. The compassions of God fail not. He's compassionate. He's merciful. His mercies are new every day. And so we are like, we talked about that in Sunday school today. What does it mean to be created in the image of God, what means that we are like God in many respects, and therefore we emulate Him. We emulate many of His communicable attributes like kindness and love. The word patience, by the way, if you're still there, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, it's, the word patience literally means in the Greek to defer your anger, to defer your anger. It means that you made a conscious choice to to, to not go with your anger. <laughs> even maybe you could have. Even maybe you were justified in doing that. Paul certainly was. The Corinthians had sinned against him. The Corinthians were listening to his opponents. They were undermining his ministry. And Paul certainly could have led with his anger. But over and over, Paul shows that he wanted to lead with his patience with his gentleness. And again, like I said, the, the, Paul does not prescribe what he himself does not abide by. And so to you and I, how is this so relevant? It's relevant, brothers and sisters. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, we are called to the same standard of patience and love and kindness and gentleness as Paul was. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy, beloved, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see that? We have such a glorious opportunity to emulate the Apostle Paul. Not just because you're another minister, but because you're a Christian. You have such a golden opportunity to look into the life of this eminent apostle, this, this, this eminent saint of God, 
and to learn from him and to take all, extract all of the riches of his character and of his example and apply them to your life. So glorious. Now, moving on, let's go to the last two. He says, also, in the Holy Spirit. That is to say that Paul's ministry was characterized by the Spirit of the living God, by the Holy Spirit Himself. The Spirit's ministry reached into Paul's ministry. It was all over Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry was characterized not by the flesh. It wasn't characterized by the wisdom of man, the wisdom of the world, by the wisdom of this age. He was led, he was compelled, he was energized by the Spirit of God. He took his cue from God's Spirit. And guess what the Spirit taught Paul? To go right back to Christ and to the gospel and to the Word of God. So much is done in the name of the Spirit today. And what little is done in the name of the Spirit today is really shameful. Because the Spirit, if you do a study, I'm going through a a study on the Holy Spirit right now with Sinclair Ferguson, and what he's just emphasizing is just the utter Christological or the Christ-centered nature of the Spirit of God. How that the Spirit is always driving and pushing us back to Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said? After all, the Spirit was for? To glorify Him. He will take of mine and He will give to you. Well, He took of Christ and He gave to Paul. And he energized Paul's ministry. And he motivated Paul. Paul was motivated not by the flesh. And this might be important for the argument of Corinthians. If you have an eye towards what's going on in Corinthians, what's the sort of the authorial intent there? What is Paul getting at when he mentions the Holy Spirit? Remember that there are those in the church that are accusing him of not being spiritual, of not being motivated with the Spirit of God, but being motivated by the flesh. Being motivated, in other words, with ulterior motives, hidden motives, false motives, uh, disingenuous motives. He wants to get your money. He wants to get your, 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 your influence. He wants to lord it over you. He wants, to, he wants to dominate you. These are the things that his opponents were telling the Corinthians. Paul insists, no, my ministry is in the Spirit. But what's, in, what's amazing about this is the Corinthians knew that. And so anytime Paul mentions the Spirit in this way, I believe, in connection with his ministry, right away they knew, yeah, that's right. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They owe their very existence as a church to the Spirit himself. 1 Corinthians 2.4. He says, My message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There's two things at work there. How do you know that Paul's ministry was marked by the Spirit of God? Two reasons. Number one, because there was a demonstration of the Spirit, and I think connected to that, sort of subordinate to that, is this idea of power. Now, most commentators would agree Power there is most likely a, a, a reference to miracles. That he came and he performed the signs of an apostle. He had miracles to authenticate his claims, his authority as an apostle. But also when he says the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, it also speaks to this. That the Spirit of God was 
powerfully moving among them, producing holiness in them, producing a holy life. Are you hearing me today? That's what the Spirit of God does. It produces holiness. The Spirit of God transforms. We saw this already in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is so amazing because it shows us again the primary work of the Spirit is not to, is not to show off the Spirit and maybe some charismatic excess Okay, many Pentecostal churches want to do that. They think you walk into a church, if everyone's speaking in tongues, it's a very spiritual church. That's so false. That's false. What we should be looking for is this. Is there transformation in that church? Are people's lives transformed by the Spirit of God? Then you will know whether or not the Spirit is in this church. Then you will know whether or not the Spirit is really at work in that ministry. Are people's lives being changed? 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into, a, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. What is the primary work of the Spirit in the church? To transform our lives that our lives don't look the same the, you know, years back. They don't look the same now as they did years back. There's a transformation. There's a progression. There's one degree of glory to the next. And I have seen this in my life, and I have seen this in your lives. I've seen the Spirit transforming you, growing you, maturing you, sanctifying you, growing you. That, to me, is clear evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in our ministry. Praise the Lord. The very last thing, he says, genuine love. Perhaps one of the most significant charges against Paul is that he doesn't love them. Is that what he's doing he, is not motivated out of a genuine agape for the church. That he's, genu- he's motivated by other things. He's double-minded. You remember chapter 1? Verse 17, that was the charge. Oh, he's, he's duplicitous. He's vacillating. He's going back and forth between commitments. He's saying one thing and he's doing another thing. How can you trust Paul? Well, Paul defends that. But the whole basis of it is love, isn't it? Love does no wrong, Scripture says. And because he had genuine love, he had no hidden agenda. Because he had genuine love, he had no hidden motive. Because he had genuine love, he wasn't trying to exploit the church in any way. But genuinely cared for its sanctification. And that is my greatest prayer for me. That I would be genuinely motivated out of a love for you and for your sanctification and for nothing else. Listen, for nothing else but to see Christ formed in you. Not for money not for membership, not for building projects, not for capital gain, you know, projects that we, you know, thermometer projects where we raise all these millions of dollars, not for programs, not to have a rock climbing wall on the back of the church. My, my, the, the, the very fountain of my motivation in the church ought to be rooted in a genuine love for you and for your sanctification. That's what it's for. That's why I don't get up here week after week and preach messages about, oh, how, how you can have a better marriage. Here we go on a 50-week series on psychology. 
and how you can lose weight in the church. Weight Watchers Christianity. I mean, where does it end? And pastors are just spinning their wheels, and they have all these creative teams. They get together, and they brainstorm, how can we do stuff so that people will like it? Instead of asking, how can we do what this is telling us to do? Right? Listen, I don't sit around and think, how can I do stuff so that Heritage Grace will like it? And visitors will be impressed and they'll stay. <laughs> that doesn't motivate me during the week at all. I, I, I am consumed with, am I getting this right? Did I do it right? I look over my Greek exegesis and I try to make sure I did everything right. I look at my commentaries the best I can. I am open to people correcting me and showing me. And, and the greatest thing is, look, when I walk into heaven and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm not going to care if our church was big, small, if it was rich or poor. I'm not going to care about that. I'm going to care, did I give you the truth? And you should care about, did we obey the truth? Did we submit to the truth? Kent Hughes, I'll end with this. Kent Hughes has, sort of captures the whole essence of Paul's demeanor here. He says, Paul wants us to see that his great endurance in ministry is not an angry, tight-jawed, I'll show you endurance. He says, but rather his endurance rests in his purity of motive in life, in spirit-given knowledge of Christ himself, in a spirit-imbued patience, and it is not provoked to anger. It is genuine, not hypocritical love. It is truthful speech in the power of God. Paul's great endurance is a spirit had a Spirit-endowed sweetness. And that's what we want. We want the Spirit to be pleased to bless our ministry, to bless the preaching, to bless the church, to bless our fellowship, and bless everything that we do for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Lord, again, thank you um, just for these words and... Um, and, uh, Father, I, I thank you for um, just the example that we have in Paul, Lord. Um, such a high example. God, a minister shaped and molded by your hand. And yet, Lord, there's so much for every person here, every man, woman, and child in Christ, that we can learn so much from Paul's example. We can learn so much from his endurance. And Lord, we know that we're going to face trials. We know that we're going to face hardships. We know that this life is going to throw all sorts of different curveballs at us, and we are going to have to be ready. Please fortify us. Please strengthen us. Give us spiritual vision and fortitude for our lives. Oh God, all for your, all for your namesake, all for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.